Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 24, The Western Emperor. I have a bit of a cold this week, so please forgive me if the recording doesn't quite sound as it should. Last time, we saw Justinian attempt to restore Italy to the Empire. The diplomatic games failed to deliver a bloodless coup, and so Belisarius invaded from Sicily. After capturing Naples and then Rome, he bedded down for a year-long siege. By spring 538, the Gothic king Vitiges was retreating north towards Ravenna. Belisarius's sub-commander John, the nephew of Vitalian, had taken the town of Ariminum, 33 miles south of Ravenna, and now Belisarius faced a dilemma. John was deep in Gothic-held territory, having disobeyed the command not to leave enemy settlements to his rear. Belisarius was concerned that Vitiges might capture John, and the 2,000 cavalry under his command would be lost. As we know from his campaign so far, the highly trained Byzantine cavalry were the crucial weapon in any conflict. A detachment was sent ahead and made contact with John, telling him to leave Ariminum and return south. But John refused. We've explored some of the reasons why Belisarius struggled to command the loyalty of his subordinates, and in this case there were personality issues, as clearly John was bold and headstrong. Whatever other reasons there might be, matter less than the fact that Vitiges made straight for the city and put it under siege. You can follow the action on the excellent map at thehistoryofbyzantium.com, from C. Placidus, of course. Belisarius had already moved up the west coast to subdue the towns north of Rome when the news reached him. The situation quickly became confused when more troops arrived from Constantinople. Justinian had heeded his general's letters asking for reinforcements, However, a certain paranoia had crept into the emperor's mind. Procopius claims that it was fueled by Theodora, who saw in the brilliance of Belisarius a potential challenge to the throne. Reports had reached Justinian that when Belisarius had entered Syracuse in Sicily, he had thrown gold coins to the cheering crowds, which was his right as consul for the year, 
Justinian's thinly veiled response came in a law issued soon after, which stated that from now on, consuls could only scatter silver. The newly arrived troops, 7,000 in all, were commanded by Narses, the 60-year-old imperial chamberlain last seen handing out bribes to the Blues just before the Nika rebellion turned into a massacre. The choice of a highly trusted eunuch rather than any other general can be seen as a deliberate attempt to keep an eye on Belisarius. Narses had also read carefully the instructions from Justinian which were issued to the commanders in Italy. The note ordered them to obey Belisarius so far as it was in the interests of our state. Narses, a master of palace intrigue, read between the lines with disastrous consequences. Belisarius marched east and met the new army at Firmum on the west coast of Italy, about a hundred miles south of Ariminum. Although John's situation was perilous, Belisarius argued that they should not march to relieve him. His predicament was due to insubordination, and to move north would allow the Goths to surround the imperial army. Narses, though, was a friend of John's, and argued that surely Belisarius wouldn't let petty disobedience stand in the way of doing the right thing. It wasn't just John who was in danger, but valuable troops, and the poor citizens of Ariminum. John could be punished later, if he had done anything wrong, but the right thing to do was to rescue the city. Belisarius relented and agreed to relieve the siege. His plan was to ensure that the Goths would be scared away rather than stand and fight, and with typical mastery of the conditions, the plan was a complete success. Belisarius led his men through the mountains, while another approached the Goths more directly, giving Vitiges the impression of being surrounded. When the fleet also arrived the next morning, the Goths abandoned their camp and made headlong for Ravenna. When a gaunt-looking John emerged from Ariminum, he offered his sincere thanks to Narses, a deliberate snub. Dissension now frustrated Belisarius. The geography of Italy meant that the Goths couldn't be defeated in open battle as the Vandals had been. The Apennine Mountains, which run down the centre of the country, meant there were dozens of Gothic strongholds that needed to be taken one by one. Belisarius favoured a cautious approach, and although Narses and John cooperated openly, they quickly pursued their own policies. The fact that Narses controlled the imperial pay, which Justinian had dispatched with him, meant he was able to maintain the loyalty of the army that had travelled with him. The next moves went smoothly. John overwhelmed the town of Imola, while Belisarius began besieging the town of Urbinum, which was well positioned on a hill. Once more, the general's legendary luck appeared when the town's spring ran dry, forcing the Goths inside to surrender. By winter, though, the divided forces hadn't made the progress which Belisarius would have liked and were divided across the north of the country. Another wrinkle had come in the form of the Bishop of Milan, who during the siege of Rome had asked Belisarius to send a garrison to take the city from Gothic hands. With Vitiges in retreat, Belisarius had sent a thousand men north, feeling he must respond to an Italian request for imperial support. 
Once the troops arrived in the area, known as Liguria, several other towns requested garrisons, and the thousand men divided up to oblige them. By now, only 300 soldiers held Milan, the largest city in the north of the country, and Vitigiz's nephew had been gathering forces for a siege. He was reinforced by 10,000 Burgundian troops. I don't want to get too deep into Frankish politics, but the split monarchy of the Franks led to a fierce competitiveness over opportunities for conquest and plunder. Theodobert, the nearest king of the Franks, had sent the 10,000 to aid the Goths. If you'll recall, he'd already taken Justinian's money in exchange for not helping the Goths, and played off the invasion, claiming that the Burgundians were not under his control. By now, though, they very much were. Belisarius sent two of his commanders to camp on the southern bank of the Po River. Once they saw the size of the army besieging Milan, they wrote to their general requesting reinforcements. The nearest army was under the command of John, who refused to move without Narses approval. So letters were sent to Narses, who agreed, but by the time all of this had taken place, Milan was done for. Uraeus, the nephew of Vitigis, sensibly secured the capitulation of the imperial soldiers, who were spared their lives in exchange for abandoning the city. So it was the Milanese, the Italian subjects of Goth and Byzantine, who bore the worst ravages of war. The city was sacked and destroyed, the male inhabitants slaughtered and the women and children sold into slavery or given to the Burgundians. It was a disaster for everyone involved, including the Goths who lost the wealthiest and most populous city under their control. And by now, it wasn't just the Milanese who were miserable. The north of the country was a war zone and was rife with famine and disease. The marches and countermarches of armies had picked the land clean of supplies. The imperial troops in towns could be supplied by sea, but for the Italians on their ruined farms, there was no aid. Procopius reports that people lived off acorns, grass, or even human flesh. And while he may be exaggerating, it's certain that thousands were dying of starvation and that lands were not being cultivated as a result. By March of 539, news of Milan's destruction reached Justinian, including a letter from the furious Belisarius, who had no doubt where the blame lay. Narses was duly recalled, and a new letter issued, stating in unambiguous language who was in charge in Italy. It's worth noting, of course, that had Belisarius refused to send troops to Milan, the whole situation could have been avoided. He had essentially made the same mistake that John had by entering Ariminum. Before Milan fell, Vitiges was feeling increasingly desperate. Imperial troops were embedded in towns across the north, and although he still had an army and held Ravenna, he was convinced that any day Belisarius would appear outside the gates and his days would be over. Having already sought help from the Franks, the Gothic king looked around for some other ally who could distract the Byzantines. 
any attempts to contact the tribes along the Danube failed because of Justinian's convert-and-pay policy, which we explored in earlier episodes. It left the king only one option. He wrote to the Persians. He sent a letter with two very well-bribed priests who could cross imperial territory without suspicion. They presented the letter at the court of Kusro in Tessaphon, suggesting that now was the ideal time for an invasion of the empire. The king's words did not fall on deaf ears, and we will return to see what Kusro has been up to in a moment. But once Justinian got wind of what was happening, he quickly determined that it was time for peace in Italy. Belisarius spent the whole of 539 methodically besieging the Gothic strongholds on the route to Ravenna. The Gothic armies couldn't march south as imperial troops blocked every pass and crossing. And with no shame at all, Theodobert, the Frankish king, decided to betray the Goths and go plundering in Italy. He'd already backed down on his word to Justinian, so why not burn all your bridges? The Franks drove both Uraeus and the imperial armies from Liguria. Almost comically at one point, the Gothic cavalry just ran through the Byzantine camp as they raced back to Ravenna. The Franks, however, weren't laughing as they advanced into a country ravaged by famine. Finding that the country could not support the army and suffering from dysentery, the Franks returned home. By spring of 540, the final Gothic strongholds had fallen, and Vitiges had done little to help them. His fears had at last come true, as Belisarius led the imperial army north and placed Ravenna under siege. There was no hope left for the king, who entered into negotiations to surrender. However, at this moment, imperial ambassadors arrived, with instructions from Justinian. The Persians were preparing for war, and Belisarius was needed in the east. Peace was to be made with the Goths on lenient terms. The Goths would keep Italy north of the Po River, and the Byzantines would take the rest. Half of the Gothic royal treasure would be handed over to the emperor. Belisarius was furious. He had spent five years now in Italy and was one siege away from total victory. He had eaten mule sausages on the walls of Rome in the freezing cold to bring Italy back into the empire and dealt with insubordination and crying Italians pleading with him only now to stop short. Vitiges signed the treaty and when the ambassadors brought it before Belisarius, he refused to do the same. He demanded that the ambassadors write to Justinian and get an order from the emperor directly instructing him to sign it. The general knew that this delay would lengthen the siege, and Vitiges now began to doubt whether the peace treaty was real. With supplies running low, the king hit upon a new idea that might preserve Gothic independence. What if the system of rule pre-476 was resumed? What if a new Western emperor was crowned, and the Goths could simply be his army defending Italy? Belisarius was a respected man and known for his honourable dealings. If he would become emperor, then the Goths would bow to him. The secret proposals were taken to Belisarius, who instantly agreed. He had no intention of betraying Justinian, but he simply saw his chance to take Ravenna quickly 
and return home as the man who had conquered the Goths and the Vandals. Belisarius sent John and other rebellious commanders away to garrison other towns and then led his men into Ravenna in May of 540. Vitiges became a respected prisoner, as Gallimer had done, and there was no looting or killing. The Goths were assured of their safety and property, and many of the nobles were encouraged to return to their estates. It's not clear at what point the Goths realised that they had been duped. By the summer of 540, Belisarius set sail for Constantinople, with Vitiges, the entire Gothic royal treasury, and a host of noble prisoners. It's interesting to note that when Theodoric took Ravenna from Odoacer, he too used a phony offer of joint rule to be allowed into the palace. You know what they say about those who don't heed the lessons of history. However, when Belisarius arrived in Constantinople, he received no triumph. Justinian's reception was decidedly cold, and the people couldn't help but assume that the emperor was jealous of his general, who to them had reconquered the old home province and brought home wealth and captives. The reality was more complicated, and the debate over the rights and wrongs of the First Gothic War, as it should ominously be called, has raged ever since. It would be easy to take Belisarius's side in this matter, a heroic soldier who succeeded every time he was allowed undisputed command, the general was understandably outraged to spend five years in Italy and be denied victory when he had his boot on Vitiges' throat. The Goths were there for the taking, and after all the frustrations which Narses and John had caused him, it's no wonder that Belisarius took the view that he was the man on the ground and that Justinian's order to make peace was an unnecessary precaution. To give the Goths time to recover would have seemed foolish. No one would think that the peace was permanent. Justinian struck no one as a man willing to settle for three quarters of Italy. So the Goths would almost certainly have spent their peacetime readying for war and probably making a new deal with the Franks. Frankish ambassadors had arrived at Ravenna during the siege, and Belisarius had worked hard to make sure that the Goths would not renew their alliance with their neighbours. Through trickery, the general had taken the capital, the king, the cash, and proven his loyalty to Justinian by ignoring silly thoughts of becoming Western Emperor and instead reporting for duty, asking nothing more than a friendly pat on the back and perhaps a few screams of adulation in the Hippodrome. Fair enough, right? Well, let's look at things from Justinian's perspective. It seems clear that the emperor initially underestimated the number of men it would take to conquer Italy. Leaving Belisarius to sweat it out in Rome suggests a misunderstanding of how easy the conquest would be. But Justinian swiftly sent reinforcements, and once Narses' extra 7,000 appeared, the Byzantines had a force almost as large as they'd taken to Africa. The Gothic and Vandal armies were essentially amateur forces, at least in comparison to the professional imperial soldiers and their mercenaries. The rapid victories which the Byzantines had won in both countries were testament to their superiority. The only power that could seriously threaten the empire were the Persians, 
whose own cavalry was stronger than the men Justinian could muster. The emperor was no fool, and after spending a fortune to secure the eternal peace, he was not about to endanger his eastern front by pushing on in Italy. He knew he needed Belisarius back east immediately, and could crush the Goths again in a few years. As we've already discussed, I doubt the Goths would have become docile friends to the empire, but they would certainly have gratefully accepted peace in the short term. By betraying them, Belisarius guaranteed that war would continue. Italy was not yet pacified. North of the Po River, the Goths were free. And sure enough, when they realized that they would not soon be calling Belisarius Imperator, they elected a new king and continued the fight. For a man with a reputation for honor, it was seen by the Goths as a shocking act of treachery. There were still Goths living across the whole of Italy, and though the imperial troops left behind could contain them, without a commander of Belisarius's skill and patience, they were not going to find it easy. Belisarius, however good his intentions, had actually dealt the empire a double blow. By staying in Italy to complete the conquest, Kustro had no one who could match the force mustering in the east, while the capture of Ravenna would lead to more war in an already ruined Italy. The failure of the first Italian campaign is a case study of poor communication between sovereign and general. The fortune that had favoured the African campaign was gone, and the failure to finish off the Goths, or leave them in peace, was to cost the empire in ways it's hard to calculate. Justinian could hardly doubt his general's loyalty, though, given that he returned home after refusing the title of emperor. However, his disobedience caused a break in the friendly relations they had once enjoyed. Justinian would never quite trust Belisarius as he had done once. The mere offer of the imperial title also made Justinian uncomfortable. He was still an upstart, after all, and memories of Nika probably lived vividly in his mind. Reports had come in from Africa, you'll recall, that Belisarius had wanted to make himself king, and now the title emperor was being thrown around. For a man sitting on a throne hundreds of miles from his conquests, it's easy to imagine how fears like this could grow. From one throne to another, then, we move to Tessaphon in modern Iraq, where we last left the king of kings, Kusro, counting his coins after Justinian coughed up 11,000 pounds of gold to secure an eternal peace. As we've covered on the podcast so far, the Persian Empire had been rocked by various defeats at the hands of the Hephthalites, or White Huns, on its northern border. Khusro's father, Kavad, had begun a series of reforms to make the Persian state stronger, and Khusro spent the first decade of his reign continuing, deepening, or completing these ideas. Many of these reforms bear a resemblance to the changes Diocletian had to make in the wake of Roman military defeats in the 3rd century. The Persian army was divided into four main centres of power, complete with a chancery to help organise and pay these forces. New tribal groups were recruited to serve, whose loyalty would lie with the king, rather than their local nobility. 
the nobility, who had for so long dominated Persian politics, were targeted to reduce their local autonomy and to ensure that tax revenue reached the centre. Smaller landholders were favoured for positions in the bureaucracy and the army. And, not to ignore the influence Christianity was having in the borderlands of his empire, Khusro encouraged the office of the protector of the poor from the ranks of the Zoroastrian priesthood. From now on, the protector would offer the kind of social welfare you would expect from bishops in Byzantium. After suppressing his rivals for power, Khusro also began to style himself as an enlightened monarch. He tolerated Nestorian Christianity within the empire, and as we saw back in episode 19, welcomed the philosophers of Athens, albeit briefly, to the Persian court. The translation of works of medicine, philosophy, and music were widely encouraged, and law codification followed on the heels of Justinian's efforts. Even chess was imported from India during Khusro's time in power. The decade which followed the eternal peace led to a certain jealousy, though, on the part of the King of Kings. He was working hard to shore up his empire, building a series of defensive walls in each corner of his realm. Meanwhile, Justinian was off conquering new provinces and constructing huge buildings to celebrate them. Persian ambassadors were present during Belisarius's triumph in the Hippodrome, and reported to Justinian afterwards that Khusro felt he was entitled to a share of the Vandal spoils, seeing as how the conquest was only possible because of the eternal peace. Justinian didn't laugh at this suggestion either, making sure to send his neighbour a gift. Gifts were not enough, though. Khusro was still paying tribute to the Hephthalites, a wound to the pride of any great monarch, and as he eyed the uncertainly defended Byzantine frontier, he had fond memories of all the loot his father had brought home from the previous war. So when Vitagis' envoys arrived, suggesting that the Byzantines were vulnerable to an attack, the King of Kings was more than ready to listen. Khusro's inbox had been filling up with pretexts to break the peace for some time. The Lakhmid and Ghassanid Arabs were quarrelling over territory in the desert, while there was serious unrest in Armenia. As you'll recall, the country of Armenia was occupied by both the Byzantines and the Persians. On the Byzantine side, the new army of Armenia had to be fed and paid for, which many Armenians came to resent. There was also general outcry when Justinian insisted that his newly published law code should apply to the Armenians. This meant outlawing Armenian marriage customs and feudal arrangements, which inevitably led to rebellion. Sitas, Belisarius's contemporary, was sent to deal with the situation and was killed in the fighting which followed. He was replaced by Buzis, who we know from the Battle of Dara, and although he got a hold of the situation, some Armenian nobles slipped across the line and went to Kusro, begging him to do something about the meddling Byzantines. The King of Kings had heard enough. He gathered a large army and prepared to attack as soon as spring 540 began. This was the same time, of course, that Belisarius was refusing to do as ordered, and hoping to starve Vitiges into submission. This meant that the Byzantines were without their best troops 
and general when Kusro came knocking. We'll have to leave on a cliffhanger, though, and return to the invasion in two episodes' time. In two weeks, we need to catch up on domestic matters for the rest of the 530s. That's the thing about Justinian. You turn your back for a few years to see how his wars are progressing, and he's gone and tried to reform and legislate a whole other side of his realm. Thank you so much for listening, and for your feedback, which is still most welcome, on iTunes, at Facebook, or at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.